This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Welcome again to another episode of 50 miles per hour and a bit of a detour today. Let me first catch everyone up. Last week in our ongoing chronology and oral history of the making of Speed, 20th Century Fox has finally found their director and cinematographer Jan de Bont. Speed would be de Bont's directorial debut at the age of 49. He would turn 50 years old on the production, in fact. This after a career that took him from Holland to Hollywood, where he became one of the industry's top DPs. I thought it would be a good idea to put this guy into context before we forge ahead in the story, and so today I've dragged another of our top film critics into the fray with me, Bilga Ibiri. Bilga is a film critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. He also, by the way, knows his way around a film set as a cinema studies graduate from Yale University, where his thesis film, Bad Neighborhood, won the Lamar Prize. I bring that up mainly because I think Bilga is a guy who understands filmmakers and what makes them tick better than most. So who better to sit here and dissect Jan de Bont with me than him? Bilga, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Of course. Now, before we dig in here, I just want to sort of lay out where Jan was coming from as a person and as a filmmaker. Jan de Bont was born on October 22nd, 1943. That makes him a Libra, if that means something to you. He's Dutch. He grew up in the Netherlands. Probably a keynote here is he was one of 17 children. Jan studied filmmaking formally. He attended the Netherlands Film Academy in the 60s as artists of his generation were writing high on the inspiration of the French New Wave movement. Jan's film education was production-focused. He and his fellow students learned every trade on a film set and would often wear different hats. They learned to operate camera, to mix sound, to direct, to act, all aspects of a film shoot. In this spirit, Jan collaborated with a number of his classmates, both in school and on projects that came after. Some of his film school colleagues included Adrian Ditvurst, the documentarian, René Dalder, Pim de la Parra, perhaps most notably Wim Verstappen, whose film The Unfortunate Return of Joseph Katus to the Land of Rembrandt would be Jan's feature debut in 1966. Now, Jan and Verstappen worked together on a film called Blue Movie in 1971, and that was really kind of the launch of Jan's, I guess, notable feature career. And a quick note on Blue Movie is that it was true to its name. It was the first Dutch theatrical release to feature sex scenes and an erection. The same year, however, Jan began what would ultimately be a decades-long collaboration with Paul Verhoeven. Verhoeven had been energized by the work he saw from Jan on Verstappen's films, and so he hired him to shoot his own short film, The Wrestler, that would lead in 1971 to the first of six feature films they would make together, Business is Business, and then in 1973, most notably, Turkish Delight, a groundbreaking work that really set both of their careers on track. And this is where I'd like to bring Bilga in and just start talking about Jan's career. 
So, Bilga, Turkish Delight, I, I know you said it's been a while since you saw the film. I'm fresher on it, but does anything come to mind on that one? It's been a very long time since I've seen it. Um, I remember I, I, I did a deep dive into Verhoeven like over a decade ago. And, and you know, that film, I mean, I, I was always intrigued by that film because it's called Turkish Delight. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I'm Turkish, but, um, you know, I, I remember it. And the thing I remember about that, and a lot of Verhoeven's early work is just how energetic it all is. I mean, it, you know, and, and you can sense. And of course, you know, I, I don't know how much of it is Devant and how much of it is Verhoeven. I, I think they they collaborated very closely together. Um, and Devant later talks about how, you know, energy and just kind of the vitality and, you know, keeping the camera closed, keeping it moving, those kinds of things were so important to him. Um, but, you know, like the, the thing you said about the influence of the new wave, even though, I mean, I, I would never think of Verhoeven as like a new wave filmmaker in the way that I think of new wave filmmakers, but you could see the influence in that early stuff. It's, it's fascinating to chart that influence and how it, you know, kind of fed and fueled those early movies and how that style eventually became kind of the Verhoeven, you know, 80s, 90s aesthetic that then, you know, helps revolutionize Hollywood action filmmaking. Yeah, it's crazy how things are connected. I mean, yeah, the with the style of Turkish Delight, I spoke to Paul Verhoeven for this, and he was kind of leaning toward a more conservative look. And it was Jan who pushed him to, you know, no, let's go handheld hmm. and, uh, you know, let's be a little more lively with the camera. And that meant having to dub sound because the handheld cameras made a lot of noise. And it was a drastic vision that Verhoeven just ultimately agreed with. He called it a crisis on set, like they were fighting about it. It was based on an acclaimed novel, Turk's Fruit, by Jan Wolkers. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars, Most Successful Film in Dutch History. In 1999, it was named by the Netherlands Film Festival as the best Dutch film of the century. So, you know, they love it over there. <laughs> and uh, it's just sort of full of certainly what would make Verhoeven tick, I think, as a filmmaker. You know, it's sort of immersed in, in some sense, the psychology of sex and the psychology of infatuation. But then it goes into some really unexpected depths. Uh, it's Rutger Hauer, uh, Monique, Monique Van de Ven. Monique would actually become Jan's wife for 15 years. But yeah, it's just a free-flowing... I don't want to say I've not quite seen anything like it, because there's certainly a lot of stuff that's been inspired by the same things that it's inspired by. But it's just full of life in interesting ways, and uh, also in a way that I think at that time was explosive for filmmakers, both here and in Europe. You know, we talked about the influence of the new wave, and it's not just the influence of the new wave. It's really what it is, is the influence of the 60s and 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 also the tail end of the 50s, right? You know, with the, the, the beats and things like that. And, and what's what's happening, I think, is in many cases... It's kind of a delayed reaction from country to country and culture to culture. Um, because if you remember when I think it's either, I can't remember if it was Truffaut or, or Godard writing, you know, in the late 50s um, for Cahiers and kind of laying out a manifesto. I think it was Truffaut laying out a manifesto for the kinds of films they wanted to see and the kinds of films they wanted to make. You know, this question of, you know, we want to see life as it is. We want to see we want to see girls the way we see girls. You know, I mean, it's, it's all very, you know, it, it's all very male centric, but but it's all very 60s. Yeah, but it's very <laughs> 60s. But 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 it is you you get the sense that it's like they're frustrated with the fact that the films that they're seeing, even when they're good, aren't really reflecting the life that they 
that they recognize and they want a filmmaking that does that. And I think you see in, in a lot of countries, there's this delayed reaction where more and more filmmakers are making those kinds of films. But in, you know, in the case of Holland, I don't know that much about Dutch cinema, but one gets the sense that it's that starts happening in the 70s for them. Um, yeah, yeah. I was going to say this whole notion of how reflecting real life back to them, that will actually become crucial in how Jan as a filmmaker operates and what he wants to capture on camera. Yeah, yeah that's actually an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see how these ideas that we think of as like kind of almost highfalutin artistic ideas, right? Oh, look, capturing life as it as it's lived. It sounds like something that like verite documentarians would say and stuff like mm -hmm. that. It's funny how 30 years later that translates to die hard, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's true. Like it's still that same, it's still that same mentality. And it's always fun when you talk to these people. There's no difference in the way that they look at these things. Like to them, they're still thinking of it as art, which they have to. I mean, they, they have, but, but it is still kind of from the perspective of like an artist thinking about their work as art and thinking about their work in like art history. Mm -hmm. Like that's how Jan still talks about his movies. You know, yeah. that's how he talks about Twister. <laughs> you know, I yeah, love about that. all of his movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, after that, they would go on, obviously, to do a number of collaborations together. But there's a film in there. I wonder if you've seen this film. It's called Dakota by Wim Verstappen. I have not. What's it like? I just want to bring it up because it's got some of the speed DNA in it. And, you know, you'll appreciate this. It's a movie I think Michael Mann ought to remake. It's this guy who flies a Dakota aircraft. Uh, he's a pilot. He's just obsessed with flying. He loves flying, and he just, like, there's a sequence where he's got these barrels of fuel that he keeps on the plane so he can just refuel the plane without landing. And there's just a sense of obsession and meticulousness about mm -hmm. the film. I mean, it's, it's a weird movie, and I'm not even sure it works as a movie. Uh, and it goes to some narrative places, but just that idea was so kind of weird and fascinating to me. So seek it out. It's actually on YouTube in full. Ah. Dakota, 1974. So after that, uh, Jan and Verhoeven would work together again on Katie Tipple, which they leveled up in production value on that one. And there's, you know, if you're looking for them, there's, there's some echoes of Showgirls in there, I think. And then beyond that, we won't bog down in each of these, but there were a number of other productions in Europe with other filmmakers. However, Jan always wanted to go to Hollywood. Paul says this too. He was always wanting to go to Hollywood. Jan, uh, he, he wanted to go to Hollywood before Verhoeven wanted to go to Hollywood. Jan has said that he wanted to go there even before he knew what it was or, or where it was. He just knew he wanted to work there. It was like this magical place. And so he goes there and his first experience in Hollywood is Roar. <laughs> so let me just let you lay out Roar, Bilga. Uh, I'd love to just kind of let you set this scene. Well, Roar is is the movie where I mean he himself gets like brutally injured in Roar, right? I mean it's it's one of those films, and it's so funny because yeah, you know it is it is Hollywood, right? Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a sense, yeah, eccentric Hollywood. I mean it's it's funny because you and this happens a lot with um you know I mean European filmmakers and others. It's like they're you know they think oh American movie Hollywood, and it's like. Uh, not really, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, and that's the film where he gets mauled by a lion. But it's like he gets mauled by a lion. But that's after all these other things go wrong. Right. I mean, it's like I think it's I mean, the film was supposed to take a few months and it wound up sh shooting for like, what, five years or something. Uh, 
but you know their village burned down things got flooded everything got destroyed the animals got loose um and they had to like go hunting for them to to to, to like retrieve them and this was before the incident with the lions which jan has talked about many times uh where let's contextualize that a little right. bit for people that don't know you know it's it's it's, it's a film set on a nature preserve right and it's kind of like a you know i mean it's like a horror comedy adventure kind of film right it's been years since i've seen it it's got a wacky tone <laughs> it's not a good film at all i mean it's a terrible movie um but he in in if i remember correctly the way this scene worked was you know um tippy hedron and it's melanie griffith too right and they're yeah. they're like being attacked uh, they're out in this lake and the film, you know, the crew is shooting, you know, the, 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 these lions are supposed to go over this, this like thing that they've constructed. And he's inside this hole with the camera. But then one of the lions gets curious and actually starts sniffing around inside the hole and basically grabs Jan's head or bites Jan's head and starts dragging him out. Um, and... And his full ass head. Yeah, too. he scalps him. I mean, the lion scalps him. Yeah, it lifts his scalp, and yeah, it required like over two hundred stitches. There's a picture out there of the back of Jan's skull. It's horrific, and he talks about how like you know what he remembers most is the sound of the teeth on his skull in stereo. Right, right, and he, he says and it was how like he was nails on a, nightmares after that. Yeah, he says it was like nails on a chalkboard, but but like two hundred times louder, which just sounds horrible. Um. The the thing that's interesting though is you know he goes back to to set and people have sometimes interpreted that oh Jan de Bont like he's kind of this macho man doing this and it was actually like I think his doctor because because he was so traumatized by it and was having nightmares and and was like unable to function and I think his doctor or somebody was like maybe you should like go back and and maybe that's how you work your way through this yeah go face um, it. But 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 it's it's telling that he still talks about it. Now part of it is because it's a fascinating story, and like people like me will ask him about it. But it's so clear that like every time he tells the story, he focuses on different elements. So it's clear that it's still a very vivid memory for him, and of course it should be. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't forget that. <laughs> yeah, but but what's interesting about the Roar incident, sort of for his later career, is there there are a couple of ways to respond to. An incident like that you know you can become very careful right you can become very careful and you know be very buttoned up in the way you might shoot action or you might shoot things that are sort of uncontrolled on set um beyond Devant goes in the other direction and he becomes one of these filmmakers i mean especially when he becomes a director who like doesn't mind danger on set you know who doesn't mind um throwing actors into harm's way or thinking that they might be in harm's way, you know, like he, that sort of that sense of unpredictability and vitality um, and danger. He, he loves to foster on his sets um, so much so that, you know, there are later stories about, you know, people getting injured on the set of Twister and people getting yeah. injured on, you know, sets of speed and speed two and stuff like that. And by the way, this is, I mean, before even he becomes a director on Die Hard and things like that, they're always doing like these kind of crazy, dangerous things. In some ways, mm -hmm. you know, the American action movie renaissance of the late 80s and 90s is founded on people just sort of saying, you know what? We'll probably be OK, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and it's, you know, the, the results are kind of amazing. Um, 
I think that uh, in terms of in terms of Roar, I do wonder if like if there's kind of a kind of thrill speed demon quality to Jan de Bont as a result of that. You know how sometimes that kind of trauma can lead you to sort of want to re-experience that sort of almost that adrenaline rush. Or even just look, I just survived a lion almost ripping my head off so I can survive anything. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he is a madman. He's told me stories of like when he was shooting some documentary in the Netherlands and there were like shipping containers coming in the water and he fell out of a helicopter, like a considerable height, like fell all the way down and, and just crazy stuff. I mean, he's 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 a legend, I think. I think he knows he's a legend, too. I, I think he'll be the first to kind of keep even certain myths going but i love that about him too uh yeah one thing about roar i will say when you watch that movie it is not a good movie as you said but they they caught some crazy shit on camera like you got your kind of jaws open the whole time your your jaws on the ground just what you're looking at is real these lions and all this shit going on i mean it's it's a wild movie and so anyway definitely seek that out if you haven't seen it. Um, it's not going to change your life or anything, but it's a specimen. So as Jan goes through Hollywood, uh, he's doing films like Private Lessons, Cujo, the Stephen King adaptation, which I'm a big fan of, by the way. All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, and then a few more Verhoeven collaborations. You know, The Fourth Man, what a fascinating piece of work. He went back to Holland for that one. Uh, so it's not part of the Hollywood stretch, but man, both him and Verhoeven went off with that movie. It seems like it's rare for a movie to be both Hitchcockian and Lynchian in, like, the most complete, like, definition of those terms. And I think, again, they both sort of leveled up with that movie. It's incredible. It's also indicative of his versatility as a cinematographer because it does, you know, it's not one of those films that I think of as, like, there's a precision to The Fourth Man. It's been years since I've seen that one, too. But I remember is, I mean, like you say, Hitchcockian, but there's a precision to it, a precision to it visually, which very, which surprised me when I saw it because I think of as Verhoeven as more unhinged a filmmaker. Um, and, you know, Fourth Man, I, I think, I mean, it was, you know, obviously he, he made it back home, but but it sort of harkens back it not harkens back, but it foreshadows the work he did post Hollywood when he kind of went back to to Holland um, mm -hmm. or to Europe. Um, it's interesting. It would have been fascinating to see him continue in that vein. Yeah, um, yeah there's a formal approach that's unexpected, I guess, um, at that time for him, even in Hollywood. I, I think maybe I read this, that Verhoeven is called the fourth man like a spiritual prequel to Basic Instinct, which it kind of is. I mean, you can see mm. it. But yeah, it's a wild movie. And, and regarding the versatility, I mean, Jan, these guys are coming up as kind of not as formally rigid. And it's not that I think the movie is formally rigid, but it's definitely a little more locked down. It doesn't feel as from the hip as that early stuff. Yeah. Like, like I said, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's a real sort of precision to it. And, and I wonder sometimes, because it's, this is before... I mean, Verhoeven comes to Hollywood after Debont does, and I and I and I wonder if there's, um, like I wonder what kind of influence Debont had on that film, you know, because there is a certain sort of slickness to it yeah. that 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 makes you wonder, oh, is this like him kind of saying, okay, I've been to Hollywood, here's how they do it over there, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Now, when Verhoeven does come to Hollywood, I guess it's Flesh and Blood is kind of the start of that. 
I mean, it's Orion gives him the most of the money, and it's a mess of a movie. It's a strange movie. Uh, there's not much to grab onto in terms of who I'm rooting for here. <laughs> it's just depicting the Middle Ages and all of its agony, really. Well, I, I mean, I, I love Flesh and Blood, though, because it's just... Exactly. I mean, None of that ev- was a value judgment, by oh, the way. Oh, yeah, None yeah. that was a value judgment. I mean, everybody in that movie is utterly vile. <laughs> um, and, and it's funny because I never think of it as a Hollywood movie. Right? I always think of that as that movie, you know, also because it's, it actually has, like, weird dubbing and stuff like that like when i watch it i watch it as oh this is one of you know verhoven's like you know <laughs> dutch movies and, and it's not you know it, yeah it is kind of his entree um it feels like it doesn't feel hollywood at all i mean it, it feels like something that you know some deranged european producer just like threw a lot of money at and you know they came out with like kind of this this nutty cult movie totally it doesn't feel like a 1985 movie, even. It feels like a late 70s movie. Right, yeah, it's just, exactly. Uh, it's, there's something off about it. Jennifer Jason Lee is in that with Rutger Hauer again. Jan goes on to Jewel of the Nile, which is the sequel to Romancing the Stone. That's Louis Teague, who directed Cujo. Then he does something like Ruthless People. So now we start getting into some of the wacky Hollywood stuff. He does Ruthless People, which is, you know, Abraham's Zucker Brothers uh, film with Danny DeVito, Bette Midler, Judge Reinhold. He does Who's That Girl with Madonna. And I find this interesting because he's got Who's That Girl with Madonna. Earlier, he has All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise. So, you know, stars. And not that Tom Cruise was Tom Cruise at the time, but there's something about how this is a guy who was starting to capture these stars on camera in kind of their early years, and I find that fascinating. It's also interesting because a number of these movies, I mean, he does Who's That Girl? He does Leonard Part 6. Talk <laughs> about does, wacky. He does Clan of the Cave Bear, and a lot of these films are, I mean, I, I haven't seen Leonard Part 6. I remember when Leonard Part 6 came out, everybody was like, what the hell is this? Um, and it's, you know, one of the most reviled movies ever made. Um, I've never seen it. I've seen the trailer. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, obviously, you know, Bill Cosby was huge back then, but um, but nobody expected that movie to be any good. But there, like, there are a number of these movies that are just kind of like famous flops. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Clan of the Cave Bear came with a lot of expectations, too. And, and that, you know, if I remember correctly, was kind of a disaster. I mean, the, the book was a runaway bestseller, so it, there was you know, a lot of expectations around it. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, he's he's cutting his teeth in Hollywood, but he's he's cutting his teeth on some, like, notable runaway productions i mean who's that girl I, I don't know much about the production of that movie but i know that some of those like early madonna movies were really troubled productions because i think she was very difficult i think there was this you know sort of heavy attention on them because of that i mean, shanghai surprise is another example of these um and it's it's interesting i mean he, he's working with stars but also in some ways, maybe learning how to deal with them and learning how difficult it can be to work with stars. Like you noted, I mean, Tom Cruise is not um, is not huge. I mean, all, all the right moves, I believe, is the same year as Risky Business, right? It's right around then. And I think that'll come in handy later when he's dealing with, you know, star egos and also trying to figure out how to make stars do things they don't want to do, which comes yeah. which comes into play with speed, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Well, now he moves on to, I I like to say this is when he moves on to Hollywood's A-list director set with Die Hard in 88. 
John McTiernan coming off of Predator. Uh, this is when Jan is going to start developing an aesthetic, I think, that will um, influence movies of this breed for years to come. And it's still looked back on by directors, mm-hmm. cinematographers, as an aesthetic that uh, they want to emulate. I mean, anamorphic lenses, not to get too deep, uh, they're back in demand. You know, people say they want that Jan de Bont look. So mm-hmm. let's get into it. Die Hard. I mean, what else can be said about Die Hard that hasn't been said? But when I've talked to Jan about this movie and just about his approach as a DP, operating camera a lot, wanting to be there with the actors, you know, uh, w- wanting to be there running across the glass with Bruce Willis. Uh, and, and there's something, I guess, about being able to capture a performance of reality um, that, that he's really big on. There's this intangible quality about that and how he shoots these films. So there's Die Hard, there's Black Rain with Ridley Scott. Um, I don't love that movie, but it's it's got a lot of run and gun kind of stuff, kind of the yeah. way his early years were, because they were like shooting on the streets without permits and things like that. They were just kind of knocking right. out footage here and there. Yeah. It's interesting to look, though, at Die Hard and Black Rain together, because, um, I mean, we talked, we talked a little bit already about Jan's versatility. Um, as a cinematographer, those are two very different looking movies. I mean, they're both action movies. There's, you know, a lot of similar elements, but but they're two very different looking movies to me. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since I've seen Black Rain, which is, I don't love it either. But, you know, Ridley Scott is such a, especially back then, was considered such a visual stylist, right? I mean, you know, he's done Alien, he's done The Duelists, he's done um, Blade Runner. Um, and, and it's interesting to see Jan de Bont work in the Ridley Scott style. Uh, and, and, and he's able to do it. And Black Rain is, is a gorgeous movie. Um, but it, it is interesting to see him bring certain elements. And I wonder if Ridley Scott himself learned some things from Jan de Bont. I've, I've never talked to either of them about that movie. But um, he, because Ridley Scott's style has been sort of, I mean, I've used the word precise already to describe Jan's work, but but um, of some of Jan's work, but there is this kind of very painterly quality to 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 Ridley Scott's work. I would never, mm-hmm. even though Jan de Bont is actually obsessed with painting and has a um, I don't know if he has a painting background, but 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 you know he's he's done like lectures on Rembrandt and stuff like that, so he's he's very well versed in the history of painting and the history of art and things like that. But I've never, I would never have think of his style as painterly right whereas Ridley Scott's is um but Jan brings a kind of sort of heatedness to it right and and the thing you mentioned about Die Hard that idea that he's always and he's always operating his cameras too so he's always Mm -hmm. there he's always up close to the film to the to the actor um and he's able to kind of see what he's getting from the actor in terms of tension in terms of I mean Sometimes it's performance and sometimes it's just like those intangible things that we think of as performance, but is really just like the actor as a human responding to things around. Them. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that I think becomes part of his directorial style later. And, it, and it's fascinating to watch how it can in speed. It pays amazing dividends and a movie like Speed 2. It's like, Jesus Christ, pull the camera away. <laughs> like, why is everything in like, you know, a handheld breathless close up? these people are relaxing in their uh in their room the cruise is about to start like just calm down you know um <laughs> but i think but i think he he understands the value of that and sometimes later he'll maybe start sort of overdoing it 
Um, but with yeah. with Die Hard, it's it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Yeah. And and then he would go on to work with McTiernan again, going into the '90s, uh, the Hunt for Red October. And this is where he would actually get into trouble for operating the mm-hmm. camera because he's dealing with Hollywood unions, and, and now we've got to hire somebody on set to operate that camera. You can't just grab the camera and operate. And you know his argument was, I mean, obviously this is what he wants to do anyway, but his argument also was that it was a necessity because of these enclosed kind of situations with the submarine movie, you know. Uh, he's he's got to get in there. But he ran afoul of the unions with that, and he says there were lawsuits, and he eventually had to hire people to come on set, and they would just sit there and not do the job because yeah. we've got to hire you, fine, but I'm still going to operate the camera. So anyway, uh, Hunt for Red October, I'm a big fan of that one. Um, It's such a 1990 movie, and, and no, I'm not going to explain what that means, but uh, hopefully people understand what I mean by that. Yeah, it is it is actually, and I remember when I, when I saw it, I was not that big a fan of it. Um, you know, over the years, as its reputation has grown, I've I've revisited and I and I, and I love it now. Uh, but back then, it was you were so kind of, I mean, these Tom Clancy movies, I would get so kind of wrapped up in like the the, the Cold War politics of it all. And uh, but it's just a just just a kick ass submarine movie. I, I I've since over the years come to terms with the fact that. I don't think there are any bad submarine movies. It's just one of those genres or one of those subgenres where I'm just kind of subgenre um, where I'm just kind of <laughs> like, you know what? Prison break movies and submarine movies. Those are the two. And I don't know what that says about me, but it's like you really, really have to screw it up really bad for me to not like one of those. You can really soar with it, too. I mean, if you're, yeah. you know, Crimson Tide is unbelievable visual storytelling. Best thing Tony Scott's ever made, you know? Um, I agree. Yeah. Same year, Flatliners, Joel Schumacher, another top director. Not a great movie, in my opinion. But uh, talk about stars. I mean, all of these young stars kind of going at it. Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't know what there is to really say about the movie, but uh, he gets to play a little bit, and there's some experimentation going on. There is. And also, and he's talked about this as well in terms of Flatliners, where... Just going back to what you were saying about shooting stars, you know, he has a different visual strategy for each character and Mm -hmm. each actor, right? Um, You know, Kiefer Sutherland's character is much more, you know, is just very kind of aggressive, right? So his, when they're shooting him, the camera is always kind of moving. It's very close, moving into close-ups, very kind of heroic style of shooting him, uh, which by the way, actually works against the movie a little bit um, because he's annoying. <laughs> um, but and then Julia Roberts is, you know, they, they pull back a little bit because, you know, she's so gorgeous and elegant and almost sort of untouchable that there is that sort of, well, let's just make sure she's like perfectly lit and we don't need like kind of crazy handheld stuff around her. Um, and then um, and it's Kevin Bacon, right? Kevin, Kevin Bacon, yeah. uh, and, Oliver Platt. One of these things is not like the other. Right, right, right. But with Kevin Bacon there, because his character is a little more conflicted and uncertain, there's, you know, they shoot him differently. And I actually love it when filmmakers do that. Now, Flatliners is, is not a good movie. I know there are people out there who think it's a great movie. Uh, I'm not one of them. Um, it's a great concept is what it is. It's a great concept. And it's, it's you know, Schumacher is an interesting character also because he's, 
a lot of these guys, you know, I mean, like DeBond, obviously at this point, he's still a DP, but, you know, he later becomes, you know, becomes a director. There have been a number of cinematographers from this period who, who become directors. Schumacher himself was a costume designer, right? I mean, he was, he was, yeah. was costumes or production. I, I did, I'm blanking on that, but, um, but, you know, all these people that come from the visual side of filmmaking, right? Um, and the idea, you know, these are people that are going to make the films look amazing, right? They may not know how to work with actors. You don't know yet if they can work with actors, but but you know that they're going to give you an, a, a great image. And that's something that happens a lot in the 80s and 90s. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's something that people pay a lot of attention to. Studios pay, pay a lot of attention. I mean, it's why Ridley Scott becomes a, a big time filmmaker. I mean, obviously his films are successful, it's because people know he's such a you know kind of a visual craftsman. Yeah, he's um, coming from the world of production design and advertising. So yeah, yeah it's a skill set. Yeah, and 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 I've always wondered about that. You know, some of it I wonder. Some of it's I think coming from the fact that the music video revolution has kind of put aesthetics to the for to the forefront. Um, the stuff coming out of France, the cinema du look films like the you know the diva and stuff like that. Suddenly there is. Um, there is this uh, emphasis placed on just incredible imagery. It doesn't matter if the story doesn't quite work or if the actors aren't all great. If it looks amazing, then you yeah. know, then we've got something. So give us trailer material. Yeah, trailer material. Uh, something to distinguish it from, like VHS. From you know, I mean, there's still Hollywood's always fighting against whatever home video uh, art form is, is coming coming up. Uh, or home yeah. video format is coming up, and so they're always trying to find ways to just make everything look amazing because that's they're convinced that's going to be the thing that drives people uh, to the theater. And by the way, during all of this, unfortunately, he's not able to work with Verhoeven on Verhoeven's big splashy RoboCop Total Recall because of the union scenario, or with Total Recall anyway. And but in reverse, because now Jan couldn't do it, you know, because. Uh, they were shooting that down in Mexico and sort of on the outskirts of union rules. So Verhoeven couldn't hire Jan, who's now entrenched in the union, that kind of scenario at that point. So uh, it's just kind of unfortunate in a way that Jan couldn't shoot those two movies. I'd love to see what he would have done with RoboCop. Yeah, in my mind, it, it, but I think Verhoeven learned so much from Jan de Bont that, that there is that. He's in there. I mean, yeah, it would have been great for Jan de Bont to shoot those movies, but every once in a while, I'll, I'll make the mistake of thinking he did shoot those movies because because there's they're just you know, totally. He and Verhoeven, I mean, they they really mind melded, right? And I don't know if it was because they always kind of felt that way, or if because Jan sort of pushed Verhoeven in that way, or if Verhoeven pushed Jan in that way. I mean, I'm sure it was all kind of a mixture of things and symbiotic, but yeah, that sort of heated. Real, let's let's really get into it. Um, let's let's keep things a little too close. You know that 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 is the Verhoeven style, um, at least back then. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that, that I think Jan helped him perfect. So yeah, he's still spiritually there. Yeah, which is a perfect segue because uh, Basic Instinct in 1992 is when they do come back mm-hmm. together. And what a movie! Just formally, aesthetically, this is the movie Jan should have been nominated for. The editing was nominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's obviously just entrenched in pop culture now, but it's an incredible piece of work. It is, and I remember, um, I remember when uh, we first saw the trailers for that movie, 
um, I remember it was in, uh, I was in college and I was, I don't know what movie I was seeing, but I was, I was there with um, my roommate who was also a film buff. He didn't study film, but, but he was into film and this, the trailer started and we were just like, oh man, what the hell is this? And it's like the trailer, if I remember correctly, it might've been like a teaser. There was no dialogue in this one. It was just flashes of images and, and you know, Sharon Stone grinding. And at that point, we knew who Sharon Stone was because of Total Recall. And we sort of had, um, like we thought of her as like a, actually like a really good actor. Um, and I remember we were kind of disappointed that Sharon, because it, it looked like, it, it looked like a, a flashy, shitty, erotic thriller, right? It just there were so many movies like that back then, like a right? Shannon Tweed movie or something. Yeah, like it just looked horrible. Um, and and we were like disappointed to wow, Verhoeven, you know, Sharon Stone, what's going on? And I remember, uh, I remember my roommate leaned over to me and he said, he said, "This is going to be one of those movies where when you're going to see the newspaper ad and there's just going to be this." this giant quote at the top that just says stylish, you know? Um, and <laughs> which of course, yes, it is stylish, but it's so funny because you, you like at this point, the, um, the thing I was just talking about this, this idea that movies had to look amazing. Um, that idea has now curdled into movies look a little too amazing. Like they're a little too slick and we're kind of over that now. Um, but then you see the actual movie and you're like, oh, OK, <laughs> like, this is great. So it really took a lot of people by surprise because it looked like it was just going to be crap. Um, yeah. And I think Sharon Stone got nominated, too, didn't she? Or did she? Just no, get no, it was just the uh, the Academy was on top of the craft with that movie. It was nominated for film editing right. and original score. Jerry Goldsmith. Was she nominated for a Golden Globe? She, she might have been. been. You know what? Yeah, I feel probably. like probably. Uh, well, which is also why I still sort of like have a place in my heart for the Golden Globes, because there's so many movies <laughs> that, that years later, you're like, that person should have been nominated for an Oscar. And you're like, but they were nominated for a Golden Globe. <laughs> like They were on top of it. She uh, she deserved an Oscar nomination, too. I mean, it's it's that movie. It just really works. Um, and it's people at the height of their craft, you know, just knowing how to put a movie together and knowing how to pull you in and working from this script from Joe Esterhaus that's like, have you ever read that script? Like the first page where she's killing the guy, it's just like short bursts of words, you know? I mean, it's like very sparsely written and just pulls you in just the way it's written on the page. Well, it's the era of the, 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 um, the overpriced script deal, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, I was born too late. <laughs> that's right. But, but Shane that's... Black and all of that, yeah. Shane Black, Esterhaus, they're getting the, you know, the seven figure deals that, you know, are making like headlines and variety and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Shane Black, uh, the Lethal Weapon franchise, Lethal Weapon 3 is actually going to be Jan's final film at this stage <laughs> as a DP. And it's actually my favorite Lethal Weapon movie, unashamedly. I mean, I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm right. sure that's insane to some people, but I like it. Uh, it's kind of the most Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon movie, if that makes any sense. And that's working with Richard Donner. And then there's this movie called Speed. And at this point, everyone's heard on this podcast the story of the development and how it crashed and burned at Paramount and then was put into turnaround, came over to Fox, and they were searching for directors. And now they've settled on a guy who is a bit of a risk because he's a first-time director, obviously. But also, I mean, his whole pitch is making everything that's on the page bigger. 
which is bold for a movie that, you know, at the time is just meant to be a $15 million B movie. But it's also a fun risk because, you know, do we go with a conservative choice for something solid or do we kind of roll the dice for a home run? And, and they roll the dice. So with that, let's talk about speed. <laughs> Everyone knows where I'm coming from on this movie. So what's your take on it? Well, thinking about it in, in some senses, in the context of, of Jan, Jan de Bont, and sort of him moving from cinematography to directing, there's there's so many little touches in the film. I mean, we don't need to get into why speed is amazing. I mean, it's amazing, right? So many things about it are just wonderful. And the things that always jump out at me from speed are the, these like little touches, tiny little touches that do not need to be there, right? That the movie would work fine without them. But like the extra little little bit, I'm just like, yeah, that's it. That's that's the the that's the the thing that makes speed special. Because that speaks to the, the 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 mindset of the people making it, and the the two things that that always kind of that I'm always delighted by. I always forget about these, and then I watch the movie again. Oh, right, there's this thing. It's after the first um, the first bus explosion, you know, with the with that one driver um, early on that Keanu witnesses, mm -hmm. and then the phone the phone rings, right? The um the the payphone rings, and he walks to the payphone, and you see the payphone. And the little silver backing of the payphone, you see the the flames, yeah. you see the reflection of the flames. In that that reflection doesn't need to be there, right? Yeah. Any other film, especially today, the, the the guy who's going to do the six episode speed miniseries for Netflix, he's not going to bother with the fucking flames reflected in the payphone, right? right? There isn't going to be a payphone, but but like it's going to be like an angle of a payphone that they shot two months after you know the rest of the movie and nobody's going to give a shit that there isn't like flames reflected in the payphone but there are flames reflected in that goddamn payphone <laughs> and you're there like you yeah. are there right and it's so and, and what's you, cool I, about, oh good sorry to jump in but what's cool about that shot too is the angle is wrong like the flames oh, yeah. would not be reflected at the angle that they're shooting it at and it doesn't matter yeah, the, the, the flames are not there because like they happen to be there they fucking made sure the flames are reflected in that in that payphone, right? Um, that's a cinematographer. Like that's a guy who understands everything on a visual level, knowing that that needs to be there. It's beautiful, certainly, but it also adds so much to the movie. And that's kind of the, the like, and that speaks to the philosophy with which the film was made. The other the other shot was, um, you know, it's the classic one when when they when they realized um, the highway. Is broken right when they realize that there's a gap in the highway mm -hmm. and then there's that big sort of zoom in right it goes over the highway and it, it kind of zooms into the distance and you see the the little gap in the highway right yeah and right there is like a little flock of birds right in that right in that gap right and and i don't i, I mean was that cg i don't think there's cgi it is CGI. It is CGI. And that's, in fact, a CGI trick to kind of make okay. something look like real that yeah. could be dodgy if you looked at it too much. But I know what you right, mean. Right. I mean, there's something about the feeling that evokes. Yeah, because it's not just, I mean, it, it, it makes it look real and that, that's important. But the other thing about the birds is you realize how big it is and how desolate it is. Like, it's just that, oh, this is a huge gap and there's like a giant flock of birds behind it. Like, it just adds that little that little fuck you that says, oh yeah, it's, it's huge. And look, <laughs> like, it's like kind of, um, 
I mean, it's like a gag on The Simpsons or something like that. When 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 they when they show something being totally silent and in the background, you might hear like a a dog howling, like Woo! you know, like it's 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 a little visual gag like that. Yeah. But that they they went they went to the trouble to do that again. Visual storytelling. Totally. Um, and that shot, by the and, way, and that, uh, I'll get into it. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. With, with all the digital effects artists and such, because the movie is such a hybrid of practical and early CGI in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get real deep into all of that in later episodes, but I will just say yeah. this. That shot is the most expensive shot in the entire movie. I'm sure it is. I mean, every time I see it, I'm just like, holy crap. Like, how did they do that? Um, because it's on a helicopter it, and it's zooming right. and it's tilting. I mean, there's just there's so much movement that the digital mat artists and stuff had to deal with. And it just took a lot of time to achieve that one shot in 1994. Mm-hmm. So, but 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 what's beautiful about it is it feels rough, right? It feels like a rough shot. Like it feels like almost documentary mm-hmm. um, and that roughness adds realism to it even though as you say it's you know it's 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 got all that all that work done on it again all these things speak to the kind of the way that jan i'm assuming it's jan i mean but 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 it would make sense that he would have like just kind of foregrounded this as a visual experience and of course that requires a bigger budget like that 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 requires you know more money and probably why you know the budget, I'm sure the budget expanded from 15 million, right? Um, yeah, it basically eventually okay. doubled uh, after various things. Right, right, right. You know, and, and in later films, he does get in trouble for, for not in trouble because the films are financially successful for the most part, but, you know, the, the um, except for Speed 2, but, but it is part of Gian's journey, right? I mean, the, this journey from sort of the way he was doing things as a cinematographer and sort of what was innovative for him or, or what was special for him and how that eventually translated to him as a director. But then he kind of kept going. Right. And then he kind of yeah. maybe overdid it on some of these movies where you were like, Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe you needed to take a step back. Maybe you need to, maybe you needed to go more in like a fourth man direction, you know? Yeah, no, it's uh and I said this to Justin Chang a few weeks back, there's a shaggy dog quality to the movie that I like. Mm-hmm. Like there are cameras visible in certain shots if you're looking for them. There's just a lot of imperfections mm-hmm. that obviously Jan is well aware of, but your eye is diverted. Mm-hmm. And that's the magic. I mean, you're capturing this chaos on camera. It goes all the way back to Roar, right? I mean, like capturing this kind of chaotic reality and all its imperfections. And this is why he doesn't love CGI, because CGI, not to speak too broadly about it, but it's partly a pursuit of perfection. And I try not mm-hmm. to bog down on here with dumping on CGI because I'm not that guy, but there's something to that, that practical in-camera stuff. It captures a sense of spontaneity and, again, imperfection uh, that, that adds to the experience and is obviously what attracts Jan to it. So Well, and, and, and it, it changes the meaning of imperfection and, and perfection, right? Because CGI, if you're, I mean, you might be, Trying looking for perfection in in one area, but that leads to imperfect imperfections in another. I mean, a perfect example for me is the haunting, right? And I, I know Jan de Bont has talked about how, you know, he wishes the haunting didn't have so, so much CGI in it, but um, and a lot of it doesn't. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of I mean, the best scenes in that movie are the ones that don't have CGI, right? I mean, it just, just works. Um, those scenes, but mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a scene in the haunting where you know all this crazy stuff is coming out of the walls and there are like faces in the walls and there's like a giant hand coming out of the walls and the actors are sort of 
casually running away and Owen Wilson says something, oh, we got to get out of this freaky house. And and at this point, we, we still don't know what Lily Taylor is seeing versus what the others are seeing. But we've seen like we've seen a giant fucking CGI hand come out of the wall. It's it's enormous, right? And it looks it looks totally janky. It doesn't look right at all. Mm-hmm. But the actors are running away. And you're like, these actors have no idea what they're running away from, <laughs> right? Because yeah, cause... you're right. There there's a very big disconnect uh, with the actors in yeah, that movie and, that you can palpably and, see. Like especially Lily, like she's lost the whole movie. Yeah, it feels like to and, me. and it's and it's and it's especially difficult because there is this narrative tension between what they're seeing like she's seeing these things that they're not right and but then later they're seeing the same things right so it's like the haunt the house really is haunted or whatever and it's kind of like what is going on like what it's like the actors don't know what they're responding to so they can't convey what's happening the story isn't telling us because I don't know, they forgot, <laughs> but, but like, we're seeing all this stuff and we're like, we don't know if it's real and we don't, which, which that's one thing. But if the characters can't convey to us what they're seeing, we're totally lost. And like yeah. all the menace is gone. And, um and there's scenes like that. So it's like, you know, they worked so hard to, to get those effects. Right. And I'm sure they, you know, obviously it's, if it's effects, they, they worked on those later. Uh, so the actors didn't mm. know what they were running away from, and then they cut to the actors, and Owen Wilson, Owen Wilson doesn't look like he just saw an enormous, you know, steel hand <laughs> come out of a house house wall. You know, <laughs> um, you know. I mean, I'm sure you you've probably talked about this. I mean, there was a real question back in in you know 1994 as to whether Keanu Reeves was a good actor or not, right? I mean, there was this yeah. question as to whether you know, he had the ability to do this stuff. I mean, not the ability. I mean, he wasn't a bad actor. I, I'd seen, you know, I remember like when I first saw River's Edge uh, before I, I knew who he was, I was like, this guy's an incredible actor. But but later and then you see stuff like Parenthood and Bill and Ted, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And and there was the sense that um, like he's good for this thing, but then he keeps trying to do these other things and it just sounds totally wrong. And the whole, oh, surfer dude, Keanu, like there was that, I remember a lot of people talked about how like his voice was just totally wrong for some of the movies he was doing. Speed is actually mm. the same year as one of my favorite movies, Little Buddha, where he plays Siddhartha. Um, and he's I think he's great, but you can also tell they've done something to his voice um, in that movie. And um, I've actually never seen it. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, one of your favorite movies. I love. Well, I'm a huge Bertolucci fan, so um, but I've I've seen Little Buddha many many times. Um, to talk about a, a visual filmmaker, but um, yeah, it's uh, but with with speed, I think the sort of quote unquote doing it for real and creating that real context, I think that helps Keanu Reeves a lot, and I think that I think Keanu Reeves learns a lesson from that movie as well, which he later brings to his other action movies because at that time he wasn't even sure if he wanted to be an action star, but later on, I think he realizes the more realistic we can do this, the more kind of we can get into, you know, real stunts and things like that, the better I yeah. will be. Yeah. And that's totally. an important, you know, that's an important connection. Now, how about Twister? I assume you're a Twister fan. Um, So I saw Twister opening day because I was like such a big speed fan. And I was like, all right, let's go, let's do this. Um, I hated Twister when I saw it. Um, and it wasn't so much the effects. I thought the effects were really cool. I, was, I actually thought, oh, the effects are great. But like, I was just like, these performances are terrible. Um, 
I have over the years come to accept Twister and and I actually do like it now. I I when I interviewed Jan, it was for Twister, right? Um, we we at Vulture we did a, a Vulture Movie Club live tweet of, of of Twister. I didn't do the live tweet, but I did the Jan de Bont interview. Um, so I I do like Twister now, and I can kind of I don't I don't hate the performances in it now. There was the you know actually Bill Paxton had that Keanu s quality where the timber of his voice sometimes worked against the type of parts he was trying to do. You know, I mean, it's now like watching him is just like a nostalgia trip for me. So I don't know if that's just me, my opinion changing about his performance and, and all that. But but you can tell in, in Twister, you know, they are, are in some cases being faced with just like real shit happening to them. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, they get hurt for sure. Oh, I mean, yeah. We were talking about that earlier, but just like big chunks of hail from the hail machine or whatever, not breaking up completely and smacking them in the head. Yeah. Well, and, and Devant himself has talked about this where, you know, he had to tell them, listen, this is a, this is a hail machine. It's not going to be perfect. Some of these chunks are going to be big. And you're like, so you actually created a situation where it's worse than actual hail. Like a hail <laughs> wouldn't do that. A hail machine is a very janky uh, piece of equipment and might actually send like enormous hunks of ice at your head um which is, uh, you know it's such a yon de bont moment this is going to be more dangerous than the real <laughs> yeah you know but it'll, um, but it'll look great yeah it's gonna look great uh and it does look great i mean the, the, you know it's i've never not loved that movie by the way like i know people there's people that still hate it and i i can't it's like i can't understand where they're coming from obviously i mean i i was that was summer of 96 and that was like I look at that as like the last summer movie season of my childhood, and uh, it was a big mm-hmm. one. I mean, obviously, summer of '89 was huge for me, but summer of '96 was just packed, and I was at the theater all the time and just into it. And you know, Mission Impossible, Independence Day, yeah, even Eraser. Oh yeah, Eraser's uh, fun. It's just yeah. like one after another that year, and I've just always loved Twister. I also wanted to be a storm chaser at a certain point oh, in life, God. so uh, you know, this movie I saw it and I was like, man, I want to do that. How old were you then? Uh, I would have been fourteen, going on fifteen. Okay, so 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 ninety six for you is what eighty seven was for me. Like eighty seven was my was my big year where I was just seeing everything and suddenly was able to like just go see movies on my own and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, ninety six was the year after I graduated from college, so that was my first year in New York. And I think what happens with Twister for me, and like I said, I've had a journey with Twister over the years. You know, Hollywood action movies start to change around this time, right? We've had kind of the, the late 80s to mid 90s renaissance where there's still kind of a, a, a certain realism to the movies, right? Um, I mean, they're over the top. They're, they're, you know, I mean, we've had the diehards and the lethal weapons and stuff like that. But, um, but there is, I mean, there, those movies are still like, this sounds crazy, but there's a plausibility to those movies, right? Mm-hmm. It, Die Hard could happen, you right. know, like it probably won't happen, but it could happen, you know, um, and and speed could happen, you know, um, a twister. The thing about Twister and, and some of the other movies that come out after this um, and some of it has to do with sort of how CGI starts to liberate, not liberate is maybe not the right word, but it does start to liberate. Like, Suddenly, like anything seems possible. And some of the movies start to be, okay, that 
that wouldn't happen. Like the, 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 the little sort of bullshit detector in your head starts to go off, especially for, for people like me who are a little older. And I think we're just a little more ingrained in the, the way things were. But, you know, after this, you know, I mean, movies just get crazier and crazier and more over the top. Like Stargate, right? Yeah. Stargate has a kind of, I just, this is like, you've lost me quality to it. This has gone a little too crazy. You haven't sort of quite justified how crazy it is. Yeah. And it just, you know, it just loses me. And Twister for me was kind of like, okay, it's this starts. It's funny because it doesn't start in a realistic register. I mean, the craziest scene in the movie is the opening scene, right? But because it's like tornadoes and because it's like a real world thing, I I think I went into it expecting something a lot more uh, or maybe just a little more grounded. And that opening scene, I was like, well, well, what? (laughs) Come on, what? (laughs) Um, And and of course, he's doing the right thing. He's he is starting off with a scene that lets you know exactly the kind of movie it's going yeah. to be. I mean, he loses me with the opening scene or he lost me with the opening scene back then. I was all right. Well, this is ridiculous. you talking about the dead flying up in the, yeah, that's yeah. too much for you. Okay. Yeah. Um, back then it was now I'm kind of like, okay, because there've been so many other movies since then. And I've made my peace with the, the direction that um, action movies went. And now I watch Twister. I'm like, yeah, sure. This is great. No, put put it back in theaters. I'd go see it again. You know. Well, now they're rebooting um, it with the Minari guy, so maybe you'll like it more. Uh, yeah. I, wh- whenever I hear something like that, where like, oh, Lee Isaac Jung. Um, obviously, my first instinct is, well, that sounds like a terrible idea. But then I think to myself, well, okay, look, these people aren't idiots. Like, it's not like they just like said, oh, Minari, yeah, that guy, look at him. Clearly, he went into the room with them and had a vision for it yeah. and was just like, listen, this is what it's going to be. And and I, I have I have I have been duped many times by this, so so it's not a perfect approach. But I, whenever I see like a completely ridiculous name attached to a project like that, I'm like, this is going to be good because there's no way they would have like went for this guy or this you know this person if if this person didn't have an idea that just like knocked their socks mm-hmm. off. Now sometimes that person doesn't have the chops to pull that off and you know you've run into trouble but i don't know i'm i don't know the isaac chung we'll see we'll see we'll see i know kenneth branagh directed four (laughs) that's true that's (laughs) true that that is a thing that happened that Um, is a thing that happened yes all right speed two let's get to it uh speed two cruise control i should say Uh, i will dedicate an episode of this podcast to speed two down the line but uh what do you have to say about this one man it's a fun movie to talk about i mean it's i think um well, the other thing about speed that that sort of emphasizes why Jan was so good for it, you know, he's he's very good with space. He's very good with sort of situating you in space, and he's very good with, um, well, he's very good with machinery, right? Uh, you know, he's kind of like a, I mean, he's not as good a filmmaker as James Cameron, but he has that sort of engineer's mentality. Um, but he also has, as we talked, that 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 desire to kind of get up close to you know, to the actor and sort of that sort of heated, unhinged, handheld quality. So those are like two almost opposing abilities that he has, not opposing, but like two two different abilities that he has. And in speed, that works perfectly. And, you know, I mean, the, the elevator scene is a perfect example of that. But that's also the scene in the movie that convinces us, oh, this is going to be good. Like after that scene, you're, you're totally into it. But he directs the hell out of it. Right. And he's and he's simultaneously able to stay on his characters and sort of capture sort of that that um, the immediacy of what's happening in their faces uh, and 
the energy of what's happening in the way he kind of shoots them but he's also able to keep us sort of situated in space right that's you know there are a lot of directors out there making action movies who can't do either of these things um i mean some of them can't do one or the other and some of them can't do either of them and it's, you know yeah it's a disaster but he's he's able to do both of those things and he's very good with that right um and then speed two he's got the problem of well i mean it's a boat it's not going very fast mm. you know they're on a cruise it seems like he's trying to overcompensate for it by sort of doing the thing where he's like stays close on the actors and kind of flails around with the camera but it just leads to just chaos and confusion and annoyance yeah um and and it's it's really frustrating uh and the other thing is it's like at first the ship is not actually in crisis it's just like willem dafoe sort of making it seem as if the ship is in crisis mm -hmm. so then you have this added problem of well it's like i mean this is pre-titanic um but but there's this added element of well nothing's actually happening to the ship so so jan can't like do the things that he can do he just has to make it seem like something's happening. And once actually starts stuff does start happening, you know, the film settles in. There are some nifty little moments in speed too. It's not, you know, there are moments where you're like, oh yeah, yeah. These are the things he can pull off. But uh woof. It doesn't have that quality that the first movie had, which is his whole mentality was I wanted it to be like this these events were actually happening and a camera just happened right. to be there. Yeah, well, to your point, with Speed 2, if a camera just happens to be there, what's it really capturing when it's just this boat lumbering right. along? Exactly. Uh, like, like, it doesn't work conceptually. It's fully his deal, too. I mean, uh, Mark Gordon is not a part of this. Graham Yost is not a part of this. It's a Blue Tulip production, and he's, you know, got screenplay credit. It's his auteur This film. was, for better or worse, <laughs> going to be his baby. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't have, you know, the chemistry between Keanu and Sandra was a big part of the first movie. And I mean, I'll never forgive this movie for ruining her character. Uh, they haven't they haven't figured out what to do with the characters. Yeah. So anyway, we should sprint to the finish here. OK. Sure. Um, after this, he does The Haunting. We've talked about that. And uh, then the last film, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, which I haven't seen since it came out. And I have zero memory of it. Same here. I, yeah. I mean, it was sort yeah. of. No, I remember not liking it. <laughs> that happened. And uh, and then it was over. I mean, he developed a number of things after that. Uh, I don't know if you had anything else to add about that one, by the way. Uh, nothing about Lara Croft. The thing that is, it, it's interesting when, because he, he'll talk about some of the stuff he developed and some of the stuff he developed got made. Um, but, um, I mean, it got made by other people. Yeah, like Godzilla. You know, he talks about the Godzilla yeah. film that he worked on. I actually think, he could have made a great Godzilla movie. I actually think Jan de Bont would have been perfect for Godzilla and the Roland Emmerich Godzilla is, I mean, I haven't, maybe I'll change my mind on that one too, but nah, that you movie won't. stank. That movie <laughs> stank. And, and I feel like Jan de Bont actually kind of had the right attitude for a Godzilla movie. Like that would have been kind of, I think he could have really pulled that off. Totally. Um, he talks about minority report and how, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, as as you've noted yourself, directors love to mythologize, but they also, um, I mean, everybody does, but but they also um, sort of portray things differently. Um, I don't know what happened with Minority Report. I know that he was he developed it for a long time. He was supposed to direct it, and then um, 
and then Spielberg was supposed to do The Haunting. And at some point they switched because of like timing issues. Tom Cruise was available to do Minority Report suddenly. And Spielberg went to do Minority Report because, I don't know, The Haunting was going to take longer or something like that. Anyway, um, and then you're like, well, I mean, Minority Report is a great, great, great movie. Yeah. And it's a great Spielberg movie. And maybe it was just chance that DeBont, got stuck with the haunting and it didn't work. Um, I mean, made a ton of money, so whatever. Um, and Spielberg wound up doing Minority Report, which wound up being great. Um, but there's also another part of me, which is like, ah, did Spielberg kind of know that he was like, oh, no, 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 I, I'm going to, I'm going to go make this. There is this, there is this, you know, Spielberg has a great record of having like developed movies and then left them to just be an executive producer. You take yeah. this one. I don't think I want to do this one now. Yeah, and and then suddenly like that movie is not good, but it makes money, so it's like everybody's happy. But it's like, and meanwhile Spielberg went and made this other movie, which fucking rocks, you know. Um, and it just happens over and over again with him. Uh, and maybe I mean maybe that's just maybe it's just because hey, he's Spielberg. He's a really great filmmaker. I mean he's 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 the best we've got. It's like you know, you you trade your best player to this other team, and suddenly that other team is great, and people are like, well, why why wasn't this happening last? you know with the previous players i'm like because they're different players you know um but yeah i mean uh the thing i always wonder about though because he's you know devont is clearly you know i mean he's become a hollywood filmmaker he sort of is working on, on these grand scales which requires hollywood budgets and hollywood craftspeople and all that but he also has this real difficulty as you've noted with like the unions and all that stuff and 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 also i think uh kind of um, you know, deal with stars and things like that. And and I sometimes I wonder what might have happened had he gone the Verhoeven route and just like, you know, go back to Holland and make movies there. Like, what if he made like smaller, smaller thrillers and things like that? I, I it could be interesting. I mean, I, I don't know that he ever thought about it. But yeah, no, you're totally right. That's interesting. I haven't really thought about that, but that that would be great. Anyway, I'm just going to quickly rattle off a couple more things that he's developed over the years since. Uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky was this legendary, unproduced script. It was sort of bastardized in the form of Cowboys and Aliens later on, which Jan also considered directing. Kind of Chariots of the Gods vibes, Eric Von Daniken, Native Americans and Aliens, you know, kind of an ancient aliens uh, deal. He developed uh, Stopping Power, which was like an action movie with John Cusack, and I guess the funding dried up on that one. He was developing the Point Break remake for a period, which is funny, considering the Keanu of it all. And the last one that I know of is uh, he was developing Mulan over a decade ago, and then obviously that ultimately was made by Disney about eight or nine years later. And then now he's done. And, you know, I've told him, like, I, I wish he would make another movie. I want one more Jan de Bont movie. They don't make the movie. I mean, I'm sure there's a number of reasons he's not going to make another movie, but they don't make the movies that he wants to make. They certainly don't make them the way he wants to make them. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of no country for old men mm -hmm. in a way for him. Uh, he's big into photography and works with the Getty Museum here in L.A. a lot. He donates a lot of his collection, and that's his passion. But he remains just this interesting figure in filmmaking history and Hollywood history certainly latter 20th century filmmaking, uh, because, again, he developed an aesthetic that a lot of filmmakers strive for in today's overly digital world, I yeah. think. 
And I think he gets enough credit for it. I mean, sometimes I wonder if he does, but again, I just wish there could be some movie that could come yeah. along that he could just knock out like he did with Speed. But here we are. It's 2023, and we're not going to get another Jan de Bont movie. But uh, he's the man. He is the man. Um, he, he's, you know, the thing about Speed is also there's a certain claustrophobia to Speed, even though it's, I mean, it's grandiose. You know, every time I watch it, I forget that there's the whole climax in the subway and everything. Um, but but each of those scenes are not scenes, but each of those sequences are, are built on the kind of con- contained quality of the space, right? There's the subway and then there's the bus, obviously, and then the elevator. Like he's actually, he's good in these sort of small sort of high pressure environments. And I wonder if there might've been a way for him to make, I mean, I've speculated that he should, you know, go to Holland and make movies or, or Europe, but, but like maybe there was a way to kind of make these smaller movies with these sort of, contained sort of spaces whereas you know he's just gotten bigger and bigger and you know more more and more grandiose you know more characters more you know like him making Mulan just sounds like a disaster you know um like why would he make Mulan you know um and 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 Twister like Twister is a film that you know in its best sequences it's like people stuck in small spaces whether it's like the car or the van or you know there is that sort of contained atmosphere even though Obviously, you know, you're out in the open and there are tornadoes, but um, but like he's good with that element. And I and I feel like there was probably a way for him to sort of make like lower budget action movies that sort of played with that idea. Almost like how M. Night Shyamalan kind of went back to that after sort of he tried to make these bigger, more grandiose, you know, films like. Um, Last Airbender. Yeah, he kind of hit the wall with that and came back yeah and it seemed like um, we were so worried that he was just going to keep trying to make those types of movies and suddenly he was like oh wait there's this other thing that i'm good at and i'm going to do that and suddenly he was like oh right he's back that's true that's <laughs> true know? so so yeah. yeah maybe we can convince jan to do a smaller project i'm always yeah. i'm always leaning on him and trying but anyway this was great uh like i say i just wanted to get a good overview of who this guy is before we forge ahead for people who might have uh wanted or needed a deeper dive uh, and frankly, it was helpful for me to revisit some of this stuff and, and watch some of the stuff I hadn't seen. So uh, you were spectacular for this, Bilga. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. That's Bilga Abiri, everybody. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour, it's time to find our Jack Traven. The studio searches high and low for a leading man as Speed gives birth to a new action hero. And so at some point, we've hit so many people, like Woody Harrelson name that just came into my head right now but i mean it was a million people so we go out to keanu reeves he passes director jan debont has to convince 28 year old keanu reeves that he's the man for the job saudi was a very unlikely action actor i didn't want a typical cliche big macho guys i wanted to be like an more like an accidental uh, action hero somebody just happens to run into it and has to deal with it in the end, it would be the role to transform his career and set him up for global success. I, mean, I don't know if he knew what to do with this part, but he ultimately, it, it happened. And he, you know, what's a movie star? A movie star is somebody who the camera loves, and the camera loves him. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. 
You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.